Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, this is Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with Sarah Whitmire, and we're going to be talking today about kids and the child welfare, the child welfare system here in the state of Indiana. The number of kids in Indiana's child welfare system is soaring. It's doubled in the last five years to more than 29,000 kids. There aren't enough foster homes in the state, putting more pressure on the Department of Child Services. The department is already under the microscope. You may remember the news stories when Mary Beth Bonaventure, Bonaventura I'm sorry, resigned as the DCS director late last year, and she said she could all but guarantee children would die unless the state started providing more money and support to the agency. The state responded by hiring an independent consultant to review the agency. Today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk with uh, about the state of Indiana's foster care system. Is the state doing enough to help the most vulnerable children in our state? And we're going to talk about, talk about that with uh, three guests that we have in the studio with us today. We have Brent Ken, who's the CEO of Indiana Connected by 25, Kristen Bechet, the executive director of CASA of Monroe County, and Christy Cundiff, the founder and CEO of Indiana Foster and Adoptive Parents and Resources Advocacy Group. You can join us on the program by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, that long introduction I went over sort of sets a pretty ominous tone about what's going on with uh, children in our state and the system that's there to protect them. And I wanted to give the three of you as panelists an opportunity just to you know, give sort of a, a 60,000-foot view you know, from where you said about um, was that sort of an accurate portrayal or are kids being served well in the state? And Christy, let's start with you. I would have to say that the children are not being served in the state of Indiana in the retrospect of what they need and the services that they need. Um, I'm here today because I represent the Indiana Foster and Adoptive Parents, and we strive to support and educate and advocate on behalf of the foster children of Indiana and the families who care for them. And um, I would have to say um, that we can do a lot more for these kids. I believe that our state should step up and um, provide these children anything and everything that they need to be successful in their life. Um, and to help them work through the traumas that they've endured, not just in the environment that they've been taken from, but also the trauma that they endure going through the foster care system. We'll get into a lot of details about what you think uh, needs to be done differently, but I want to ask Brent to answer that same question. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, one thing I think that the Indiana public may not be aware of is that 
We are in the middle of a national child welfare crisis, and in that crisis, Indiana is ground zero. So Indiana has had the single greatest increase in the number of children entering foster care since 2012, an increase of 60%. Even in the last year that we have data available from 2015 to 2016, Indiana still held strong, the greatest increase in the entire country at 17%, and that's the number of youth entering foster care. We have more youth in the state's custody than any surrounding state, even those with uh, nearly two times our population. And even counties like Vandenberg have more uh, removals uh, due to drug abuse by the parents than cities like Seattle, Miami, and Las Vegas. So I think that um, we are in the middle of a humanitarian uh, disaster, uh, and I don't think that the public or elected officials quite realize the gravity of the situation. Thank you. So Kristen, Kristen Bechet is with CASA, which is court-appointed special advocates. And thank you for being back on the show. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. So same question. Well, what concerns me is that there are many reasons why that we have so many children in foster care compared to other states. There's not just one reason. I do want to point out that it, while it is true we have so many, I don't think there are a very small percentage of those shouldn't be in foster care. The point is is that we have so many issues in the state that are not being aggressively approached and um, um, dealt with that it's causing these children to be at harm and being the need to be removed. We have very little prevention services in the state. And that is not the focus of the Department of Child Services. Their focus is reactive. And if we have more preventive measures in the state, then I think we would see far less children in the foster homes. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's dig a little deeper into some of, the, some of the things that are happening. So, Christy, you talked about how we can do a lot more for our kids. Give us a couple of examples of things that you think are happening now that either shouldn't be happening or things that aren't happening that you think should be happening. Um, one of the things that, that we look at is, um, first of all, what Kristen was saying, the children being removed. There is a lot of inconsistencies going on throughout the state and how Brent addressed Vanderburg County. Um, No one county does anything the same. And so we get all kinds of different stories of um, what's being provided in services in one county and what's not being provided as far as services in another county. Um, We are a proponent of developmental screenings for every child that comes in to the Department of Child Services that... um, are falling short of not getting that. Many of the children who come to care are behind in school. They're behind developmentally. Um, they're drug exposed. Some of the infants um, go through drug withdrawal. And so we want um, more trainings, as Kristen said, preventative trainings um, for, for those children and to really look at uh, getting Medicaid also to step up and cover more services for children. Many times the children need the services, but then they're denied those services because Medicaid is not um, is not willing to pay for that. And then um, one of the other concerns that we really have right now is permanency for the children in foster care. We have way too many children who have lingered for years and years and years in our system. Um, I, I know of one child that's been in foster care for 11 years, and that's about nine years too long. And we need to get these kiddos permanency 
And um, DCS right now is hindering the permanency of foster children and finding homes for them. We have homes for them, excuse me. We do have homes for them, but they're hindering in their support of those homes and for the children to be left there permanently. Uh, I need to say that we did invite DCS Director Terry Stigden to appear on today's panel, but she declined our invitation. So we're we're sorry we didn't have her there. And if if, uh, anybody from that agency is listening and wants to call in, we'd be happy to talk with you on the air. Bob, if I may, I think think a big issue and and the fact that no one from DCS was allowed to come and be part of this panel is part of this issue is that there is so little transparency with the Department of Child Services. I understand the need for confidentiality and the privacy of families, but when you have horrible deaths and the number of deaths we have in the state and they're not being reported, um, the it, it, we we've, we had a couple here in the in the county just recently, and I have seen no reports of it. And so it just astonishes me how the the lack of transparency. I think if we the public knew more of what really is happening and how many children are dying, the outrage would be much greater than it is. Our phone numbers today, if you want to talk about this issue, and it's a very important uh, issue, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to follow up on something you just said real quick here, Christy, about that you do have homes for them, but the DCS is kind of standing in the way. Can you explain what you mean? When a child um, is available for adoption, there is a federal um, program, Title IV-E eligibility, that those children can receive assistance, uh, families can receive assistance um, on a daily per diem that they can get throughout the time that the child is 18, and then you can also ask for that past the time of 18 till they're 21. And... um, Many times the families are being offered zero dollars to help those children um, or two dollars or three dollars a day. Federal policy clearly says that the state is to be negotiating the ordinary and the special needs of a child. And there is in no way I don't know of any child that you can raise for two or three dollars a day, much less children who are going to therapies on a regular basis, parents who are missing work because they need to go to um, IEP meetings. Um, Our state's just not supporting the children, and it's very difficult. Um, One big example right now is um, everybody wants babies, you know, from, from the history of foster care, you know, people want babies in their homes. The state is only willing to give a foster parent about $20 a day for a per diem for a baby, an infant. And those foster parents are expected to work while they are foster parents. And so you take those children to a daycare, and many of them are paying $30 a day for daycare for that child. And so they're having to pull money out of their own household budgets to pay for the child care, and that doesn't even cover um, money for diapers, money for wipes, um, you know, all the things that an infant needs. And so we are not supporting our children the way we need. And, and let me just say real quick, that's a federally funded program. So the state is reimbursed when the child is in foster care 70% of what they're offering foster families. But when the foster family chooses to adopt that child, 
the state is reimbursed at 65%. So it's not like the state's totally funding. Um, many parts of the foster care system are federally funded. When you have your own child, you expect to support it and come come up with the resources, financial resources, to raise this child. And so many are in a camp that think that if you're going to adopt a child, then you're adopting it like your own child, and you should raise it with your own resources. What people don't realize is that many of these children who are being adopted have been through a great amount of trauma, and they have great needs for different services that will follow them for a great deal of their childhood, and it's costly. And for someone to take on a child like this, I think they're saints to bring a child in the home like this, but they some need financial assistance or relatives need financial assistance. We've had situations where um, grandparents want to raise the children and have them, but they're living on Social Security, and they simply can't afford it. And so they have to be adopted out to complete different strangers. And that's not right. Um, and that's part of where the department is just not stepping in and trying to eliminate these kind of situations. We've actually, my husband and I adopted eight special needs children. So we've lived what Kristen is saying. We have a daughter that's seriously mentally ill. Um, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia at 10 years old. And not any. there was no facility in the state of Indiana that could treat her. Um, every facility turned her down. And so we had to fly her. Um, out to Colorado to the top treatment facility in the country. She was there for two years. And my husband husband and I flew every other month out there to see her and spend time with her. And that was all um, pretty much funded through the Indiana Department of Education. It didn't, even though we adopted her and we get that small subsidy, it does not cover near what she needs. And so now she's back in Indiana, but she's not able to live at home. And she's still at 14 um, is tortured by auditory and visual hallucinations. But that's part of and And our other seven children have many other needs as well. And so, you know, you have to support these children. My daughter, for one, was um, born meth positive. She was a fetal alcohol kiddo. She was a shaken baby. She was moved through the foster care system seven times in two years. And um, then after her adoption, the final blow came with the schizophrenic diagnosis. So I have to ask you this question. So what motivates you to do this? Yeah, I mean, you're taking on a very, very large load emotionally and physically and Financially, what motivates you? Children deserve to have a forever home. Children deserve to be loved. They deserve to have one person in their life that believes in them. And um, foster parents are there. The foster parents are the heartbeat of the Department of Child Services. And when the Department of Child Services um, treats the foster parents with respect and becomes more honest and non-transparent with them, um, I believe that the, the foster parents are the key to the success and the CASA program and Brent's um, Connected by 25 program. That's my message that when I meet with Director Stigden and um, have talked to the governor and have testified on the House floor and the Senate floor is they've got to open up and they have got to ha- let the community help them. And so what motivates me is every child deserves to have a permanent loving home. But then also foster parents deserve to have a voice, too. Brent, I want to ask you uh, two things. One is to talk about you know, what 
Indiana connected by 25 is, but also those numbers that you gave, you know, in the first time that we that you answered the question about Vanderburg County versus Seattle and some of these other cities. So what do you think it is that makes Indiana and you know, Indiana's needs as bad as they are? Right. Uh, and I think it gets back to what my colleague Kristen was saying. She hit the nail on the head when she talked about the state not maximizing resources to preserve families, um, to prevent uh, what leads up to children being removed from their families. Um, any, so many families across Indiana have dealt with this. I've dealt with this myself of a family member coming to you who's struggling with addiction and you try to find them resources. You try to find them a rehabilitation facility. And the number of times I've been in that situation and I've called all of the state and I and I can't find a place, I can't find a facility open. And I think that uh, where this started, a lot of this started, is that the state waited so long to respond to the drug epidemic. Now, that's not something that happened overnight. It was not a surprise. It didn't happen over a year. This happened for years, and we're just now seeing a sort of cross-sector response, and I'm very happy for what the state is doing. But that's what why we are where we are today. One, uh, one epidemic begot another uh, humanitarian crisis. Uh, and what we don't see, I think, right now is that same kind of cross-sector urgency from um, both the government, um, our institutions, and philanthropic foundations around uh, addressing that effect of – or that, that – um, uh, from the drug epidemic and treating the youth and preserving families. So one, one good example is uh, TANF, which stands for the Assistance for Needy Families. Now that is a tool um, that is meant to uh, uh, allow children to stay in their homes and support families with only families with children in their homes um, or in the homes of relatives um, before they're removed. That's a, a child welfare prevention tool. And in seven states, the number of children uh, in foster care exceeds the number of, of children receiving TANF. And in Indiana, Indiana and Wyoming are the two worst states considering that ratio. In Indiana, there are approximately two children in the child welfare system for every one child receiving TANF. Now, that number should be reversed. So I think that uh, a lot of this is a result of Indiana not treating the families, uh, not um, providing options to families uh, seeking drug treatment, um, not providing options to um, treat the families before uh, a case to remove the child is developed. Um, so that's what got us here today. But uh, to answer your other question about our organization, Indiana Connected by 25 works with foster youth between the ages of 14 and 26 who are likely to age out of care without permanent families. And our goal is to give them these supports and to push for these systemic reforms and policies to improve outcomes for that population. So when you're considering those uh, who are in care uh, or recently out of care in that population range for 14 to 26, that's just under 22,000 young people in the state of Indiana. Consider that's bigger than the size of the city of LaPorte. Um, it, it's bigger than most school districts. And outcomes for that population is particularly dire. They suffer, for the youth who age out of foster care, they suffer from rates of PTSD at two times the rate of Iraq war veterans. One in five are homeless within two years of leaving the state's custody. A little over half graduate high school. About 3% earn a college degree and 50% uh, are unemployed at age 24. So think about 
the unrealized potential and contributions of 22,000 young people in our communities across Indiana. Uh, and what our organization does is, is surround them with supports. We work hand-in-hand hand with the Department of Child Services uh, to help uh, furnish their dorm rooms, to fund college and uh, um, workforce development programs. Uh, we work with, with Department of Child Services to match foster youth savings accounts towards the purchase of their first cars when they leave care so they can go to work or school, their first apartments. Um, it's a... a a program that helps them build their own strategies out of poverty. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we're going to take a break now. We've, we've covered a lot of ground already about the, the issues that we're facing. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more about the issues and then m- more about some solutions that you guys might uh, recommend for us. And, of course, Sarah and I have a lot more questions. But if you want to join us on the program, those of you listening out there, we wish you would, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. And you can send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about Indiana's uh, child services, basically child services, uh, primarily foster foster care in Indiana and the Department of Child Services. If uh, you want to join us, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you will be talking with... Brent Ken, the CEO of Indiana Connected by 25, Kristen Bechet, the executive director of CASA of Monroe County, and Christy Cundiff, who is the founder and CEO of Indiana Foster and Adoptive Parents and Resources Advocacy Group. Well, yeah, we've sort of outlined a lot of a lot of issues that we're facing. Can you? Uh, I know Kristen and I have had conversations about the impact of the opioid epidemic. So I, I just want to be clear about the impact that that's having on, you know, children in our state. 
Uh, Brent, you want to start? Yeah, um, and it has been a um, huge and tragic stress test for the child welfare system, and it caused a lot of the issues that we see. But what is lost in this conversation, and it was really important to keep center in mind, is that the drug epidemic is not unique to Indiana. The drug epidemic is in Michigan, it's in Ohio, it's in Kentucky, it's in Arkansas. And But what is unique in Indiana is uh, what has happened in the child welfare system as a result. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Indiana has more youth in our custody than the surrounding states, even those with nearly two times our population. So um, I think when, when we focus too much on the drug epidemic, we forget that there are some structural issue, issues um, at play here. And I think that gets back to um, not enough treatment options, not enough uh, options or family preservation options or uh, to provide family services before a child is removed. Okay. The governor this year did allocate, four, I think, $450 million more to this. Um, maybe, Christy, you can just chime in about whether money is throwing, – throwing money at it is, is the way to go. Is that – how helpful is that going to be? I mean, all good programs need to have the financial sure. backing behind them. However, again, I think Kristen hit – on it that we need to prevent, we need to, you know, the, back in the day when I was in school, it was prevent t- tobacco, you know, don't smoke. And so that we you know we didn't, we haven't started that education with those kids um, early on in high school. And we clearly know that there's research that um, would suggest that foster care is a, um, a cycle. And so if a child's raised in foster care, then they're more than likely going to end up having children that will end up in foster care and in the system as well, too. So we have to figure out how to break that cycle. And education, um, for instance, two of the children I adopted, their father and their mother was uh, cocaine users. And so it is an ongoing, they've been with me for 11 years, and it is an ongoing conversation with them how to um, stay away from drugs, what the symptoms are, how, how, what do you feel like, you know, when you have that impulse control and um, just education is just going to be a key. And then again, for um, the Department of Child Services to open up and reach out to all of the people that is here and willing to help them. So another thing that happened since this in, this call for this independent review, which is ongoing right now, is I read about this summer they're supposed to be working on this foster is it foster parent bill of rights. Um, you're nodding. Is that right? Or, Christy, you can talk about that. Yeah, we um, we we work. Our organization worked with Senator Ford, and um, we we pushed for the Foster Parent Bill of Rights to become law. And basically, what that will be is that um, the the law st- states that DCS is to develop a Foster Parent Bill of Rights with organizations and um, that work with foster parents and work in the child welfare system. So um, the law will take effect July the 1st, and I know there's been a couple meetings so far um, on the DCS's end as far as putting together a committee to serve on the Foster Parent Bill of Rights. And so we'll work at developing that. Um, I think that is the great first step in building a relationship with the foster parents and giving them a voice. So what kind of things would that include? Um, it, would, it would include foster parents being notified of court hearings, uh, foster parents being involved in family team meetings, 
Um, some foster parents, and again, here comes the inconsistencies. We have some counties who make sure foster parents are invited to those hearings. We have other counties who don't want the foster parents at the hearings. We have some counties who invite foster parents to the family team meetings. We have some some counties that foster parents aren't invited to those. Okay. Um, for instance, um, if a child's going to be removed from the foster parent home, um, it would allow for DCS to give so much notice before that child's going to be removed. It will give them more voice and visitations. Um, there actually is policy that um, says that DCS is to hold a meeting and everybody's to work together on a, visita- a visitation plan for the child to have visits with the biological parent. The way it is right now, foster parents are basically being told, make the child available at this specific time, this specific day, and their family plans have to go on hold, and and it's just not fair. And many times, those visitations change at just the spur of the moment. So the foster parent has to drop all of their plans to maybe send a child for a visit, and maybe the biological parent sometimes isn't even there. We have a phone call, so uh, let's go to the phones, and Dustin is on the line. Dustin? Yeah. Go right ahead. Uh, Well, basically my statement and question, it it hits to what she just said. I know many people that have worked with the foster care system, and uh, several of them quit, and it's because they were treated poorly. Um, They're trying to give this kid a positive environment and a positive home, and they're, you know, being held, held to a standard that is unreasonable why why should they have to drop their family plans to basically provide another service to someone who is the reason they don't have their kid in the first place okay there's a sort of a question and a statement in there so i think it does get back to what you were talking about christy so you know, if the and, and I guess I kind of had this question too. You were talking about how states are inconsistent or counties are inconsistent about whether the the um, parents should be included in all these family plans. Is there is there a, um, a difference? Let's say a difference in parents. You know, some maybe some should be and some shouldn't be. I'm talking about we were talking about the foster parents. And so if DCS is willing to take a child and put into that foster home and trust that foster home to take care of that child and meet their needs for the food, clothing, shelter, the foster parent is the one who spends the most time with that child. So why would you not want their input on how the child behaves in school, how the behaviors are at home, how the behaviors are before the child knows they're going to have a visit with their biological family, and how the child behaves after the biological family. And let me just state to Dustin's question, when a kiddo comes into care, we always look for reunification. That is the the primary goal Um, as long as there's not been an enormous amount of abuse done to that child, is we want to try to preserve that family and work with the biological family and provide them services. However, in saying that, we don't want to, they don't need to be provided services for three years. Um, You know, federal law says if the child's been out of the home 15 of 22 months, then once that time frame hits, then DCS needs to look at 
what is in the best interest of that child, continuing reunification, or to look at do we need to terminate the parent rights and get that child into a permanent home where they're going to have a permanent structure, permanent lifestyle, permanent routine, um, and all of those things. Getting back to Dustin's question even more, though, is like um, the the biological parent then has all the rights to see the kid when whenever a court says they can, though, and then the the adoptive parents just have to arrange that. Is that what the law is? Um, typically, what happens is is a child comes into care, and the family case there's a, there's a case plan set up on how many visits those kiddos are going to have um, for the week. And again, inconsistencies, and that varies across the state, county by county. And so um, then there's a supervisor typically that will sometimes, and again, inconsistencies across the counties. You might have transporters that come and pick the kiddos up at the home and take them for visits. You might have foster families who are required to take the children to a DCS office for a visit. So it just it's, it varies. And then also there's DCS foster homes and then there's licensed placing agency homes. And so the licensed placing agency homes provides way more support than what a foster family is going to get from a typical DCS home. Dustin, do you have a follow-up? Uh, yes. So you said... Um depending on basically the amount of abuse or whatever that the child has had to endure tends to have an effect on how long they um, or if they try to push to reunify the family. I would say that every child that's taken out of home has had to endure some type of abuse because if not, why would the child be taken out of the home? Children aren't taken out of good homes. They're taken out of homes that have problems. To continually put that child back in that situation, it it just makes no sense. If a parent is doing drugs and exposing a child to that, do we not think that that habit's not going to continue through the child if they're continually exposed to it? Brent, do you want to chime in here? Sure. I, I want to respond. As someone who's been through this process myself, uh, my six siblings and I, my twin brother, um, uh, our, my biological parents' rights were terminated uh, in a, a process like this. And I will say that, I mean, research shows when you can reunify, that is always in the best interest of the child. Uh, and I believe that there are many cases where, uh, given the proper supports and treatment, that uh, parents can be become prudent parents. Uh, and when you can make that happen, uh, it is in, in the, the child's best interest. They will um, they'll always long to know their family. Uh, they'll long to be uh, have have that family in their life. Um, and it it's something that uh, we should strive for. And it is very hard. For the state of Indiana, DCS, and our court system to strike that proper balance. And it can be very frustrating for people, you know, like Christy, who are opening up their hearts and homes to these children. But uh, it has to remain our, our primary goal is reuniting them in a, f- a healthy uh, family setting. And, and I think that um, oftentimes we can do that. There are no parents that I know of that wake up in the morning and say, How can I hurt my kid today? Or how many drugs can I do that would prevent me from being a good parent? These parents, um, especially the ones who are addicted to the opioids and, and the other drug use that's been going on, 
um, they have a sickness, they have a disease, and they need help. And most of them truly want their kids back. And so if we can help them and to preserve that family, that is societally the best solution. So we do seem to think that DCS bends over backwards to accommodate the parents. But these parents, at the risk of sounding like I'm defending them, um, these parents are asked to do a great many things. They're asked to go find jobs and work full time. Then they have to do uh, a plethora of services that um, they have to find time throughout the week to do. And sometimes it's very overwhelming. They're already in a crisis mode. Their children have been removed. And um, they don't necessarily have the support systems, and most generally don't, to help them through this. So where it seems like we are bending over backwards for the parents, um, there's a good reason for it. And we before to terminate a parent's rights to their children is a severe thing. It's very serious. And you want to make sure that you, we have done everything we possibly can to prevent that from happening before we take that drastic measure. And so it does seem that we favor the parents more than the children, but it really is for the best interest of the children that we do this. I want to thank Dustin for his call and remind our listeners you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. That was Kristen Bechef, the executive director of CASA of Monroe County, who was just speaking. And I wanted to ask about CASA because you you do you know CASA uh, court appointed special advocates goes into the courtroom with the child right so right. you are you are an advocate for the child in every situation we are we are a full party to the case and so we're in there monitoring um, everything that DCS does that the stu- um, kids are how they're doing in school how they're doing their foster placement and we have two taglines we're the eyes and the ears of the court we're reporting to the court everything that they need to know to make a good decision on um, the case and then we're also the I um, the voice of the child um, many times these children don't have a voice going into court and so we want to make sure that their best interest is at the forefront of every court hearing um, as that being said, we come into the case after trauma has happened, after the allegations have been um, substantiated. And so um, what I would like to do is bring to the forefront that I really think that the Indiana CHINS law, and CHINS is an acronym for Child and Needs of Services, it's our child abuse laws. They are absolutely very helpful for child abusers. Um, We have the highest threshold in the United States to meet before you're considered an abuser. Every other state has much lenient um, language in the law, which permits the Department of Child Services to intervene into the family situation much earlier. And it sounds contradictory because we have so many kids in foster care. But if you think about it, if DCS was allowed legally to go into the homes before the abuse got severe and before great harm has happened, they can go into the home, offer services, not remove the kids because they haven't been so in such a serious situation, and help that family and get that family supports before it escalates. And um, it would reduce the number of kids in, in foster care, and it would also reduce the num- number of kids who are being harmed and the severity of the harm. 
So we're talking about not having enough foster, enough parents who are foster parents as well. But what happens if there's not a foster home for a kid to go to? Well, first, let me just say um, we we have 7,300 members um, with the Indiana Foster and Adoptive Parents. And every Wednesday in our group, we post a weekly Wednesday update and foster parents will post um, how many placement openings they have in their home. How, what ages of children that they are willing to take in and take care of, and what county that they're in. Every week we have a minimum of 75 or 75 to 100 available openings throughout the state. Um, DCS has called on us to help find homes for children, and I think part of the problem is is the shortage of family case managers and the time that it takes for them to go through DCS's system to find a home versus what we will do is, um, you know, we'll post, if somebody calls me and says they have a 16-year-old girl and needs a home, we can post that on our page and we can find, we have a 100% placement rate, so we can find a home for that kiddo that very day so they're not staying in the offices. Um, we've tried to minimize that and help DCS to stop that from happening because probably about three or four months ago before we initiated that, um, we had kiddos spending the night in offices um, with family case managers because it wasn't the fact that there wasn't enough homes. It was a fact that um, it took time to find um, placement openings for those kiddos. We can always use foster homes. There's never going to be enough foster homes. However, there are families that are willing to take the children in, and, um, and, and we find homes for kids. All right. We have a couple of phone calls. Uh, let's see if we can get Lyle on the line. Lyle is from Helmsburg. Lyle, are you there? Yes, I am. All Thank right, you. go ahead. It seems like the sheer numbers of the are just overwhelming the system, and there's a reason that, that they're increasing. I think around the, the state. I won't state that as my personal opinion, but I do have a, a couple suggestions. One is, if the state is to take over the parental responsibilities of abusive and neglectful adults. I think it would be very good if the financial and emotional cost of all these things would be a part of a mandatory educational process, classes for all young people beginning uh, at least by middle school, teaching them, showing them on paper the results of pregnancy, out of wedlock, uh, drug abuse, and so on, and showing the young people how the, the, their trajectory uh, of their behavior is going to present them to their futures uh, in just a few years. And then, of course, showing them the contrast of healthy conduct. It should be a class. I mean, it's become such a, an important thing. It's, it's draining our, our uh, taxes. And then there's one other thing. I believe, and this is just my opinion, it might be a very good idea if there was a lawful way to expose abusive and neglectful parents to the public in a way that would bring about a motivation to correct their behavior. And I say this because of things that I saw when I was a child that scared me half to death because of an abusive parent. I think it would have made a great deal of difference. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Lyle. Any uh, comments to Lyle's? Feedback to Lyle's comments? Yeah, I'll, I'll respond to the first thing you said, Lyle. I, I don't disagree with you about um, you know, educating teenagers about the importance of waiting 
Uh, and, um, you know, as Chrissy talked about earlier, we have a multi-generational issue in the foster care system. Um, we don't have the Indiana stats, but uh, nationally, about 71 percent of, um, of uh, young women who age out of foster care are pregnant by age 21. And the majority of that percentage, it's child number two. And uh, very often, those children uh, end up in the foster care system themselves. Uh, and I don't think that we, again, are making enough prevention services and education services available um, to, to young people generally uh, to prevent that. All right, we have another phone call. Misty from Shelbyville. Go ahead, Misty. Hi. I, my question is, how many children do these parents just get to keep having before somebody says, that's enough? And why is there no law that says after somebody has had eight or more children that have all been removed from DCS and all been adopted, says they can no longer have any more kids? Okay, that's a big one to ask because um, you're talking for sterilization. And I'm not sure we want to go back to that, that we found that to be imprudent in the early 30s and 40s. Um, I understand your concern with that, but the ramifications of that and where do you draw the line, you're going to be open up a real can of worms if you do something like that. Yeah, Brett? Uh, If we were to go down that path, we are dealing with a symptom of systemic issues and not actually addressing those systemic issues. So I think if we focus on um, supporting low-income families and preventing families from sliding into uh, situations where they can't take care of their children, um, it's a, a more sort of holistic approach to the problem. Yeah, Christy, anything? At some point, at some point, though, do you say, "Hey, you have had eight children; they have all been removed. You are pregnant with a ninth child that we will probably have to remove." At what point do you say we are not going to continue this reunification with every? or try it with every single one of these kids that you continue to have. There is a law that um, states that if a parent loses um, the rights to two of their children involuntarily, then a third child or any child past that, the Department of Child Services does not have to show reasonable efforts. It's called the No Reasonable Effort Clause. And they do not have to provide services. They can remove that child without offering the services and um, start the termination process right away. So there is something on the book after two for involuntary termination. They can do that. All right. Well, Misty, thank you for your call. And if you have uh, further ideas on this, you could check with your state legislator. And this would be a debate in the legislature that everybody would be interested in watching, I'm sure. All right. We have five minutes to go in the program. If you want to slide in a question, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. I was hoping one of you could just talk about any sort of training that foster – if any of our listeners are wondering if this is maybe for them, what sort of training would they have to go through? There's what we call RAP training. That's resource adoptive parent training. Um, There's four trainings that is involved in that. Uh, The first training is basically just get to know you, um, just kind of go down the rules of what your house needs to have in it, fire extinguishers, things like that. Um, Second training is online. Uh, Third training is a face-to-face training with a RAP trainer. Um, 
which they're certified to be trainers, um, and it's sexual abuse training, behavioral training, trauma-informed care training, and then the fourth wrap training um, focuses on um, adoptive, adoptive training, and then um, there's a home study that has to be done. The state of Indiana has adopted the safe home studies, and so five visits have to be done to the home um, during the process of the home study. And so um, it takes about three months. Um, if you go through an LCPA or a licensed placing agency, such as Foster Care Select or National Youth Advocate Program or some of those agencies can get a foster parent's license pretty quick versus DCS um, has um, a, a staffing, a critical staffing issue. And so it may take longer for you with them. You mentioned earlier that a lot of these kids are suffering from some sort of going through something really traumatic or kids who have special needs is there if you get a child like that is there anything additional so that you can better understand how to deal with complex situations um if you're a licensed home through the department of child services you don't really have to have a whole lot of training hours many of the licensed placing agencies require 20 training hours 15 to 20 hours a year of ongoing training um such as foster care select um, here in Bloomington is um, owned by Centerstone, and so their background is in the mental health care um, uh, model. And so those kiddos um, that are with Foster Care Select then tend to get more mental health care um, issue you know, uh, help as well. Okay, we only have about three minutes to go, and I want to give you each an opportunity to, you know, we're going to have an election coming up, state legislature. All the House members and half the senators will be up for election in 2018. So what, what's, what's something that you hope that legislators will be advocating to help in this situation? What's an issue that you hope that they'll get on? Brent? Sure. You know, part of my job as CEO of a nonprofit is to raise the alarm. And I want to bring to the level of public con- consciousness the issues affecting foster youth. That being said, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I am cautiously optimistic about the transition that the Department of Child Services is in. Uh, I am anxiously awaiting the study, as is everyone else. Um, but I do think it is a prudent first step to do the audit of the system. Uh, there were some uh, things this legislative session that we got passed to benefit foster youth, some other things that I wish had gotten passed. Uh, and we're prepared to take whatever comes out of that report uh, and advocate for those changes next session. Um, but right now, we, we, we should understand that we are in a transition. And we are, I think, um, as a system, looking and examining very closely uh, things that we can do differently. Okay. Kristen? I would like the Chins Law to be um, looked at and reviewed and um, figure out a way that we can get intervention to these families a lot sooner. I do want to say that this past hour we've we've said a lot of negative things about the Department of Child Services, and I think I can say for all of us that it's 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 a systematic thing. It's a departmental thing. The individuals who work on the local bases and the counties with these children, they go in there with hearts of gold and really want to make a difference in these children's lives, and the bureaucracy is preventing them from doing the job they want to do. So I just do want to say that it's not the individuals, it's the the, the program. Um, but the Chins Law, if we address it, I think it could really make a difference in their lives. Okay, Christy. Ten seconds. Ten seconds. Um, well, the Indiana Foster and Adoptive Parents is made up of 
7,000 people, and they're not just foster parents. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're judges. We have senators in our group, and so we're looking to um, help the child care funding to help foster parents, and we're also looking to increase the um, the amount of pay, or re- I shouldn't say pay, reimbursement that foster parents receive. Okay, we are out of time. I want to thank Brent Ken. Uh, Kristen Bechet and Christy Kunda for Mike Pashkash, Taylor Haggerty, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.